and you're listening to Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. I am your host, India. On this episode, we continue part two of our conversation with internationally renowned jazz musician, Masauko Chippenberry. Listen into Act Two, The Road, and Act Three, Where We Land, parts of his journey of belonging to Blackness. Enjoy. The road. What's your passion? Passion. I, I, obviously, I, I have to say music, first off, and I really do want to stick with that. I use music primarily to put messages forth in this way or that way or the other way, but music gives me the comfort that I got when I was a child dreaming. Mm. Um, and so I'm passionate about it. That's why I'm a radio DJ. Uh, who shares music. Um, That's why when I'm not producing my own music, I'm producing other people. I consider music the language of the spirit. It deals directly in getting to your emotions and skipping all the BS that comes in between. So I'm passionate about music because I consider it a language of the soul. And so when it comes to your music, as as I mentioned in the intro, you've achieved much success, right? So both as a solo artist and as a part of the duo Black Sunshine. So what was the pathways you decided to take to even achieve and to sort of express this passion, right? So how do you show up in these spaces as a Black person, as a Black man, as a Malawian? The path for me has always been guided. I'm not, I'm a person that I can tell you that before I was born, I moved through a space where I had to learn a certain set of rhythms in order to come onto this plane. And when I returned to where I came from, I must replay and embellish those rhythms to the people who sent me here. So this path for me, I'm not like other people. I was born to do some very specific things. It makes people crazy who know me and they're like, why do you know that? And why, why, why? I'm like, I just do deal with it. So, <laughs> um, so I can say that from, from the beginning until now, there were always signposts. There was always, there was, there was God putting a musician from South Africa who ends up, who worked with Mary Makeba in my house on a daily basis. I, by the time I got to high school and I was dreaming of being a musician, my best friend was a kid named Ted Griffin who was dreaming of being a filmmaker. He wrote Ocean's Eleven. Um, Hmm. Like in high school, when I finally had a band in high school, the guys in my band in high school, in my school band, the drummer was a guy named Damon who's now a fairly well uh, known character in the underground scene called Dame Funk. He produced an album with Snoop Dogg long, not too long ago. Um, the keyboard player in my group was Josh Levy. He's, he's part of a huge group that does ballroom dance called um, the Big Bad Voodoo Daddies. So everybody, when I got to college, uh, I ended up in a band with Eric Reed. Eric Reed was, is the guy, like the kind of guy who shows up working with Herbie Hancock and Chick Corea and all the major jazz artists. And 
my life has always just dropped me off in these spaces. I was in rooms in LA with 40 people when Freestyle Fellowship was starting. That became some of the most incredibly potent music uh, to influence all of LA's uh, rappers. In fact, there's even reports that Micah Nine from Freestyle Fellowship ghost wrote for some of the guys in Dr. Dre's camp and so forth. So I was there in rooms of 40 people. I moved to Brooklyn with my wife. The first place she took me was to a place called uh, in Kiru Books. I meet a kid behind the counter. I start talking to this guy about being in South Africa. He's fascinated by me being in South Africa. And then he explains to me as a rapper, I was like, ah, a bookstore. I thought this was the one place where I wasn't going to meet another rapper. <laughs> and um, he says, you know, and so he starts telling me, hey, you got to hear my music. And I'm like, oh, no, I really don't want to hear this kid's music because what if I don't like it? But he's such a cool kid that I put the headphones on and my jaw drops and I'm like, dude, this is mind-blowingly dope. Like, I don't even understand how this could be this dope. The kid behind the counter is a boy named Talib Kweli. He's never put out an album before. This is his <laughs> demo tape. Why? Wow. Why does that happen in my life? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? But that's been consistent with me. I showed up in South Africa. I meet a kid named Toomey, who's a Dope young MC. He, I started him on his first demos. He's now the biggest rapper from the country. Um, wow. But my life has consistently put me in these spaces where I meet the people that I'm supposed to meet to have on this journey. It's a guided journey. And whenever I've tried to step off the path and look away and go, maybe I don't want to do this. Then I get sick, I get near death, everything falls apart. And until I'm singing again and doing what I'm supposed to do, nothing works. Wow. That's interesting. Just even your perception around just the path and how it's just, it's part of this universal plan, right? Because most people don't. I mean, we're, we can be quite myopic in our everyday, right? And kind of think and just, you know, sort of like, prayerful and thinking, I hope this is what I'm supposed to be doing and not really have a clue. And, you know, it's, to me, it's a sense of, it's more than just serendipity that you're encountering these folks and that you're having these experiences and influences in your life. For you, it's all part of this plan and, and how you're even showing up, like people are somehow connecting to you to say, I want to share this part of me with you. And then next thing you know, um, you're collaborating, they're blowing up, everyone's doing this thing. And it's just like, wow, who knew from that chance meeting and interaction? Consistently, consistently. Mm -hmm. The way I met Nelson Mandela was I had stopped doing music for a while because Natasha, my wife, was pregnant with um, our daughter Aminata. So I took a break from music to kind of, because the first time she was pregnant, I'd been running doing Black Sunshine. I really wanted to be there and be present during this pregnancy. We get a call from South Africa and it's Nelson Mandela's people. And they're like, hey, we would like to know if you'd like to come perform for Nelson Mandela. Wow. And I'm like, <laughs> say what? They're like, yes, we would like to have your group Black Sunshine come perform for the 4664 concert along with Queen India Ari, Annie Lennox and uh, yeah, I want to come do that. Sure. I'm on the phone thinking, maybe this is a joke. Maybe this is not real. Right. But I call around. I call my other partner from Black Sunshine. He's like, nah, it's real. They want us to come do this thing. 
And I'm like, absolutely. I'm so excited about it. Um, I go back to doing what I'm used to doing, thinking, okay, they'll be in touch with me soon, whatever. They call me back four or five day, days later and they said, well, technically because Black Sunshine is a group from South Africa, you guys are considered a local group and we're paying the local groups. So would it be all right for you if we paid you? <laughs> Please take our money. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so you're flying me across the earth to go perform and meet Nelson Mandela and you're going to pay me for this? And it's a, it's a, it's a gig to raise money for something else. Right. So I'm like, yes. Now, what was fascinating was when I got there, when Nelson Mandela at the 46664 concert 2005, George got up to make his speech, what he made his speech about was that we needed to look more closely at ourselves and understand the importance of women in the future of Africa. Mm. Now, how fascinating it is, is it that that's what the whole thing is about when my wife is having a daughter and we know this already. Mm. And they're paying me to come do it. It's like spirit is saying, okay, brother, you're about to have a girl child. And here is one of the major icons of all of Africa explaining that the future is about how we respect and treat women. Mm -hmm. That's an accident. <laughs> you know, one of the things about Nelson Mandela inspiring me to think more about women and their role in Africa's future, that inspired me to write the song, Watch This Woman, which is a prayer for the protection of women. Um, particularly in South Africa, because at the time that I was in South Africa, before the Nelson Mandela event, South Africa had the highest rate of rape in the world. For you growing up, you are, you know, you're in this revolutionary home. You have these, you know, politically, you know, active and activist parents. There's a rich history that's there who, and they're very Malawian, right? And then here you are sort of just in the space where you are um, a combination of these two. So when you're traversing different places and you're performing and you're engaging with, you know, say Mandela's people, and then you're with Talib Kweli and you with all these other people, like, how do you show up? You know, how do you navigate the, the sort of, besides your individual personal identity with the social identities and the things that you might feel that are imposed upon you or that people, or that precedes you before you even enter these spaces? Well, the thing is about it is this, I come from parents who are completely social political people. Both my parents were politicians, you know, and my mom also was a person who ran a daycare. So while I saw her deal, do is deal with different kinds of people all day long and figure out, figure out how to navigate and negotiate spaces. So, um, and again, my, like I said, my house is full of 10 different accents, you know? And the way it worked is, you know, my big brother Dan was busy, let's say, trying to join a gang somewhere while my other sister Sheila was a straight A student at a private school who was gonna end up being the saluted Victorian and so, and, you know, my big sister Nima liked rock music and listened to Kansas and Boston and all this kind of stuff. Uh, my big brother liked reggae, so he was bringing home Steel Pulse and, and Bob Marley Exodus. 
Um, my other sister and her husband were off into Kenyan music. So they were bringing home like kwasa kwasa, sokus and different stuff. Everywhere I turned in my childhood, remember now, we are a family who came from being in the highest political class in Africa, meaning my oldest brother had never gone to school without being driven there by a chauffeur. Right. I'm from an era where my family now gets cut off from all of that. And all I know is my mother on welfare with seven kids raising them single in the United States. Because mm-hmm. my dad dies at four. I have very few memories of, at five, I have very few memories of him. What I know is this hardworking lady on welfare trying to raise seven kids. However, she's a lady who studied in, in, in London. She's mm-hmm. been, you know, she's friends with, she was friends with Gracia Michelle, who's was the wife of Nelson Mandela before, you know, uh, before um, way back in the in the sixties and seventies and so forth. So I'm around highly intellectual people, but I'm also in an environment where a lot of it is just on the edge of the hood. You know what I mean? Right. And so I can now I look back and consider that a privilege. That's the thing to know about Pasadena, California, where I grew up in Pasadena, California. Most of the drug dealers who had been successful in the 70s selling coke moved up to Pasadena in the 80s in order to give their kids a different lifestyle. So those kids were the kids of drug dealers, but they were going to private school and they were studying in different situations. And it was the first sort of integrated reality. So I was hanging out with kids who were gangbanging and reading Kafka. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? And that was, Pasadena was always that way. It was always a place where it's like, yeah, you can meet some seriously thugged out people here, but Charles White also lives in this hill. Eddie Van Halen lives up in these hills. Um, Kaifas Semenya and Letambulu live up in these hills. Like, you're in a world, a middle-class access to art and entertainment mm-hmm. and, and um, that sort of information. Yet at the same time, you're in a place where, you know, your other homeboy you know, his name is Corky and he steals bikes and that's all he does. Or Johnny <laughs> Fortune, who's known for robbing liquor stores. Or, you know, I grew up with a host of characters from, you know, Maggie Heflin, who'd be, whose father, who had a walk-in refrigerator and whose father drove the newest Ferrari to, you know, my man Kafanya, who was battling bloods and crips. You know what I mean? And I think all of that plays into how I move in the world. And I've had the kind of life where, I may be, even where I'm in Costa Rica, I may be working with the, on something with the president of Costa Rica this week, and I may be in Desamparados in the hood at a, ba- at a hip-hop battle the next week. What does it mean for you where you are of this, like, this Malawian legacy and maybe others might see you even still as being very American and that you're not maybe as fluent in the language I mean, how how does that sort of translate for you? And do you think that's part and parcel some of the different issues or hurdles African musicians globally might have to overcome, right? Because it's almost like, again, the whole box of where do you fit in, how we see you, are you African enough, or are you not, is your music this or that? Like, how do you even personally navigate that? And then when you think about it for the other young African musicians coming up? That is a great question, sis. That's like the question that I've been waiting to answer in life. Nobody arrives at that question. 
but it's damn true. And you know that because you're never quite Caribbean enough for this set of people or whatever. You've been too long over here. Like I might answer it a different day on a different on a different day, but today I'll say this. I have never fit anywhere. Never. I'm the only one of the seven kids in my family who was born in the United States. All the rest of them were born in Africa. I'm consistently somebody, you know, I didn't grow up speaking the language from Africa. I didn't grow up with parents who understood racism in America. They had no idea what they were walking us into. So there is a lot of things that I've had to navigate on my own. And a lot of my deepest personal pain comes from having to have experienced racism as though not a single person in front of me understood clearly what it was. Mm. Um, a lot of painful things came through that. Um, I, however, have sort of figured out a long time ago, and that was, again, the whole thing with my dreams. I figured out you're going to have to make a world that you like to live in because you're never going to be enough of anything for anybody. It's just not going to happen for you. Um, and my music ends up in that same problem all the time. The issue is for this person, it's like, well, like I said, couldn't it be more rock? Couldn't it be more jazz? Couldn't it be more funk? Well, you're not really African, right? You were born over there. So why do you get to talk about this? Or there's always that. The one supreme lesson I learned from my father's story, when my father was asked if he wanted to be president, he said no. He didn't see himself in that role. He had certain insecurities that made it so he didn't see himself as that leader. And that was part of what allowed him to choose somebody else to be the leader. The person that they chose to be the leader ended up being a huge dictator. And mm. in 19, I believe, 65, he publicly hung a man named Medson Silombela. It's the only public hanging in Southern Africa that had been, that it like recorded history. He did wow. this in front of his own family, he killed this man in front of his own family. Kwame Nkrumah had called Kamuzu Banda personally and said, don't do that. We don't do that. We're not savages. Don't do that. Yeah. He went ahead and did it anyway. A week or two later, the coup against Kwame Nkrumah went off and uh, Nkrumah was taken out of power and Kamuzu laughed and so forth and you know, felt full of himself. But what I learned through what, my, what happened to my father is you not being sure you're supposed to do what you came to do can create chaos that's unimaginable. Millions of people in Southern Africa's lives were affected by the fact that my father and his men chose this other person to be the leader instead of seeing themselves or one among themselves as the leader. So, and that's where, you remember I said, I'm not humble. Part of that is because I learned through what happened with my father that somebody has to go, nope, I'm okay with leading. I'm a leader. That's right. in my nature. I will take that job and do it. And so that's sort of my attitude. And it's directly related to having studied my father and seen where in his autobiography, he said that. He said, you know, I wasn't sure of myself. I didn't see myself as that person. I see myself as that person. Mm. I owe it to him to do that for him. He already made that mistake. I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm a leader. I've come to do what I've come to do. You know, my last name means rhinoceros. I'm pretty much the type to chew grass all day. But if you mess with the rhino, you get the horn. That's how it works. <laughs> and I ain't talking about no trumpet, baby. <laughs> <laughs>
No, I love that, right? Because I think what you've consistently talked about with me today is just this, this, um, this duality that we're oftentimes, we oftentimes face and we oftentimes encounter, but the ways in which for you, you know, you're taking this strident step against this duality and saying, no, let's kind of teeter up to this line and blur it a bit. Right. And be able to like mesh this together. And, you know, in terms of you trying to sort of assert your own identity to say, I'm a, I am an amalgamation of all these different kinds of experiences and upbringing and circumstance. Um, And that even for you, for someone to say, well, you're not African enough because you don't speak the language. um, I think in many ways it, 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 it serves to, um, you know, like diminish a person, what they do. Do you find that other African musicians also encounter some of these kinds of experiences around trying no. to deal with the duality, but then try to blur no. the lines, but then people are checking for them? Yeah, there's a little bit about of that, but it's a little different with them because many of them are actually coming from the culture and trying to run from it because they see the possibility of that. If I'm a rapper that has no African accent, I can make more money. You know, if I sound very Americanized, even, even among your own people, in many ways, you may do better in Southern Africa impersonating an American MC than you do being yourself. So, well, what's that all not- about? Is that still remnants of the colonial, post-colonialism, where we just sort of embody in tenets of the white supremacy, where we're like, we have to like denigrate ourselves. In this there's part? that, and then there's also the fact that Jay Z and Chuck D are dope. <laughs> 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 you know, bottom line is. People like what's dope, and it's hard when you see people like Jay-Z on top of the world running this, running that, running the other, to not kind of go, I want to be, you know, like, I want to be like him. It's just the guy in my house that I wanted to be like happened to be a Pan-African, you know, genius. Um, You know, Kaifa Semenya was a Pan-African genius. For some other kids who don't get that guy walking through their house, and they see Jay-Z doing his thing, Mm -hmm. the guy is brilliant. Uh, his his politics and mine don't always line, line up, but when he's got a mic, yeah, he's Superman with a cape. Everybody want to be like him. Yeah. So I don't blame them for that. Um, my position is unique, and I like it. I'm I'm the problem. My the name Masauko actually means problems. <laughs> That's what it means. So I'm the problem. Really, I, I thought it was your mom saying, "Oh, this pregnancy is a problem." It, 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 <laughs> She, she really just named me after my father. She said it wasn't the hardest pregnancy ever. Although I do think giving birth a million miles from home on the other side of the earth is, is difficult. She yeah. was also pregnant with me in Tanzania and then gave birth to me in Los Angeles. I traveled in the womb from Africa to the United States, which I just find fascinating. But yeah, I, I really think like, you know, I'm here to do what I came to do. Very few people like, see, like most of what's going on with me, my father already told me what it was going to be. He already told me, yeah, they're probably not going to like you that much when you're alive. It's going to happen later on. They're going to get into what you're doing. Um, with that already said, you know, with my father having already stated that and then me going, yeah, he must have been telling the truth because now his name was banished in Malawi. And now there's hi- highways named after him and books and blah, 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 blah. So I'm already aware that in your own time, people, it's almost like it's just kind of instinctual that they're just not going to get it while you're there. They're going to wait till you're gone to, to get into it and celebrate it and blah, 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 blah. 
The thing is, I get it though. I, mm. I know what I'm doing. I know I'm amazing at what I do. And I know people should be listening to it. And it would be helpful if they did. The same time, if they don't, they, their kids will. It will get there eventually. Because when you have the truth on your side, when you're saying something that, 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 that's of significance and grounded in truth, and you were cultured to do this, because I'm not just saying this on my own. I was cultured to do this. Inside of what I'm doing is Malcolm X's work and Audre Lorde's work and, you know, Sonia Sanchez's work and Stevie Wonder's work and Hugh Masekela and Miriam Makeba's work. All of that is inside of what I'm doing. So I know that it's imbued with what it takes to be timeless. We're in a time right now where people don't want to deal with what's timeless. They want to deal with what's immediate and temporary. So what failures did you experience and, and, and how did you turn things around? My father had a saying, he said, I never allow myself to fail. And so I'm, an, I'm one of those people who doesn't really see failures. I see learning experiences. You know, my, I got my first big record contract in the United States in um, like, must have been the early 90s. Mm-hmm. I got signed by RCA Records and um, with my band. My band was called Skin. I was in the band with um, a Korean gentleman a white guy from the States, a dude from Spain, and another brother. And the whole idea of the band was sort of to show that we could do something beautiful together beyond race and all of this and so forth. And we got signed, but then the record company didn't know what to do with us. They actually told me, it's on a De La Soul record, they said this, but it actually happened to me. They actually said, well, we don't, want, we don't really want to put you on the album cover because we feel like if people see you, it will limit who can get into the music. And your music, you know, white people could really like your music, but they, we just don't want them to have to see you on the cover. You oh, know? goodness. Um, I was told my music was too political. I had a record exec today who's one of the biggest record execs in the United States today, sat me down at a table. I had a song called Contradiction. He told me, um, well, this song is amazing. I think it could be a hit, but there's just some lyrics in the middle of the song that I think you need to take out. And there are the lyrics in the song that say, wake up and start your revolution. Wake up, it's always you that's losing. If you could take that out, I actually have $150,000 to put behind this song. We could put $75,000 into creating a video and another $75,000 into promotion behind this song. However, if you don't take them out, I don't really see a single on your album. And I think your album will end up in the 99 cent bin. It's up to you. I didn't take the lyrics out. I got dropped, wow. you know? Um, and after getting dropped is when I, I realized I got to get out of this country. I went to South Africa. I took the same music to South Africa and it blew up. Hmm. And because one, of the one, context, one right? Yeah, the context. Exactly. South Africa was going, wait a minute. This guy's over here singing, we grow from seed to tree, me and my people building. He's talking about nation building. He's talking about us coming together and, and having a vision for the future. South Africa went, yes. Yes, this is exactly what we need to hear. And um, they embraced it. Same thing happened uh, to Dead Prez. I was involved when they first came out to South Africa. I was on the first show they did with Black Sunshine. And they were shocked because they came out there doing that. I'm an African. I'm an African. People went totally bonkers. (laughs) And I talked to the brothers and they were like, yeah, well, we made this album talking about Black Panthers and 
Fred, you know, Fred Hampton and all this old school kind of knowledge. We really didn't expect anybody to get it. And in all reality, it seems like the people in South Africa get it more than the people where we just came from. Mm, because it's speaking, right? To your point where it's just like about music and it's the heart song and people can see themselves in it also. It's like, yes, you are saying the words, you're putting it to a melody that speaks to my heart song, right? And then it's that manifestation of that. And so that's what resonates. Well, this is, this is about Black journeys, so I'll just be dead honest with you. A majority Black country likes it when you're speaking about revolution and change on a planetary scale. A majority white country does not. Right. <laughs> at, least, at least, you know, Baraka used to say this. It's like, well, you were really clever until you went to the system to see if they'd pay for your revolution. Right. You know, <laughs> I, I didn't know when I was 23 years old at a record company in Los Angeles and the white guy behind the desk, he kind of explained it to me. He's like, okay, so you're talking about revolution, but I live in a really nice home with a Range Rover and I'm here working at a record company. Life is good. I don't want a revolution. Like, you know what? What really, what I need to check is, my, my biggest mistake was, how did I miss not thinking about the idea that if you took revolutionary people, music to people who were totally comfortable with the system, they would look at you and go, why should, I fund, why should I fund this? Let's change this. That's logical. If you think you're going to be the next dead press or the next public enemy or the next Gil Scott Heron or Nina Simone or, or any of those characters, Bob Marley, make sure that you're also creating an independent reality for the distribution and marketing and, and, and of that because the system shouldn't want that music, bro. That's music that destroys the system. Right. <laughs> I love that. Act three, where we land. So currently right now, what are you most excited about, both personally and professionally? I'm most excited with the connection I've made through Guayaki Yerba Mate, who is my um, record company. We have a website called cometolife.com where my music's available and the music of other conscious artists is available. All of the artists involved are involved in some form of activism. And oddly enough, I got, I got kind of shoved in with um, some white, white, young white artists who are about half my age, but who are doing some incredibly radical work around regeneration, um, around permaculture, and making and finding places where where music can support initiatives um, that help us deal with how we're going to create new relationships with the earth in terms of eating, in terms of planting and growing. So I have a new um, project called Permaculture and Music, where what I'm doing now is I've teamed up with a young man named Luayo Biswick, who is Malawi's first black permaculture expert. There's been lots of permaculture experts, but they all tended to come from outside and sort of patronize people and sort of push people in certain directions without realizing, but there's tons of indigenous knowledge here. Africans have been planting since the beginning of time. We had a break when colonialism came and disturbed all our methods. But what permaculture is about in Africa is really about uh, reconnecting ourselves with our old practices and our old ways. And so I've met a young man in Malawi who's pushing that agenda. And in many ways, he reminds me of the kind of young man my father um, had described when he was minister of education 
in the early 60s when he had a short period as Minister of Education in independent Malawi. His first goal was to send as many Malawians out into different parts of the world to learn how other people were solving problems in relation to development and then bring back all those new ideas to Malawi. For me, Luau is exactly that sort of character. He's gone out into the world and learned um, all he could about permaculture and is bringing it back to Malawi with respect for the culture. And he, like my father, has chosen to, when he first got there, he was teaching the middle-class people and he assumed what they would do is go help all the people in the villages. They did not. They used everything he taught them about permaculture to extend their own wealth. <laughs> so, so he realized, you know what, I need to be trying to consciously teach this to people in the villages. And so I sent my first um, 10 folks through my mom's organization, Win Malawi, to study with this permaculture ex expert, Luau Biswick, and it totally, it changed how they look at the world. They totally see possibility in ways now that they've never seen it before. And I've been seeing that for a while because my theory on Africa is very simple. The people in the villages are the future of the world. There's no city there. There's no power lines there. There's no destructive carbon being pushed into the atmosphere there. In the city, you have a system of lights and a system of cars and transport that's pushing tons of carbon into the atmosphere. It's destroying everybody's lungs. The stores are now overcrowded with genetically modified food. The village where there's nothing is closer to the future reality that we want to see than the city that's been built up and has everything. Right. Because the city was built up in the wrong direction. My biggest hope is in those villages in Africa where people are still in touch with the old practices. And what we're doing now is, you know, I've already gone and put solar power in the home of a chief, Chief Moto, who was thinking about, he'd been dreaming of getting power lines to his remote village when I got him to understand, hey, but if you go solar, you don't need those power lines from the city in Malawi. And those power lines in the city in Malawi powers out half the time anyway, and they can't get it working anyway. It's like Haiti, doesn't work half the time. So you can have your solar out here in the village, have your electricity 24 seven, not pay a bill. You know, in 15 years, we can have you an electric car. You can be using permaculture systems and in all reality, just like my father said, that one who was the villain becomes the hero. That, you understand? Right. The person that everybody thought was the least now has the most. And the person everybody thought has the most actually has the least. Because the man in the village and the woman in the village are already prepared for the new ecologically correct reality that we need to set up on the planet. Whereas the person in the city is still, they still have to destroy that city to get to where the person in the village is. Right. And that's where my hope is. And that's where I think um, the vision lands. I'm working with the people in those villages and learning from them and hoping to see them develop the world in a way that can teach the people in the city how to live more in harmony with themselves, nature, God, and everything in existence. And that's awesome. And so you said that your mom's organization, Catherine Chippenberry's organization, Win Malawi, the folks listening in, our audience can learn more about Permaculture Project um, through the website? Well, the best way to find out what I'm doing is just come to masauko.com. 
M-A-S-A-U-K-O.com. You can also um, you can also find out more through cometolife.com. That's more of just general information about the regenerative movement all around the world. Gotcha. Um, get involved in that any which way you can. Um, you can also look at me, find me Masauko Chipembere, C-H-I-P-E-M-B-E-R-E on Facebook. You can find me there. Masauko Music um, on Instagram. And um, anywhere you find me, you're going to find information about what we're working on in terms of projects in the villages, projects with music. It's all connected and it's all in motion. Finally, if you have, because you, you, you dropped a couple of uh, gems during our time here, our conversation, but if there are any final audience takeaways that you think might help to inspire our listeners on their journeys of belonging to Blackness, yeah, absolutely. I'll say this. Your blackness belongs to you. So you're going to be as black or as African as you decide you are. If, if you were born into this skin, if you let anybody else decide what it, how to define you, you're going, to, you're going to die doing that. I understand myself as Masauko. I have an obligation to all of those who are descended from those uh, ancestors that I have a song, I have a song called Under the Big Tree. It's not on this album. The song is a dream and a vision that I have that all of those ancestors that came before us are sitting under a big tree somewhere, plotting their comeback to, to bring balance back to this universe and bring black people to a space where their full humanity can be shown, respected, and you know, and lived to the fullest. That's my vision. I'm a black man. That's how I see it. That's my dream. You don't have to buy into it, but I'm going to sing it really, really well and make it beautiful and seductive for you because mm -hmm. I want to bring it into existence. And I believe in the power of words. So I believe that when I sing these things, like they call it nomo, the power of word, these words go into the universe and they affect things. They make things happen. Since science says that an energy that's created can't be destroyed, that energy is going somewhere. The Bible says... God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then it says, God made you in God's own image. So if you say, let there be light, if you say, you know, uh, I'm ready to die, then you're probably going to die. But if you say, you know, we grow from seed to tree, me and my people building, you may be a kid that ends up going from living in the L.A. and the hood and so forth to meeting Nelson Mandela and, and, and building new worlds. Well, on that note, we thank you so much, uh, Masauko Chippenberry, for joining us and for sharing your journey of belonging to Blackness. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, India. Thank you for the work that you consistently do trying to, you know, bring justice to Black folks. Much love. Oh. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace.